Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Diversity Matters Show, the podcast where every voice is welcome and every story is celebrated. Join Mike and his guest as they deep dive into the heart of inclusion, equity and diversity. They explore whether real change is happening and open up honest dialogue that touches on various DE and I subjects. From inspiring conversations to challenging ones, with the hope of sparking thought-provoking discussions. Now, here's your host, Mike Seeley. Welcome to another episode of Diversity Matters. During October, we celebrate UK Black History Month, and I want to continue highlighting a few individuals who are positively raising the profile of the black community in the UK through their hard work, creativity, talent, determination, and fight for justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. In today's episode, I want to talk about education in inner London, where there is a high level of disadvantaged students. My guest this week is Teresa Alate. Teresa is the Chief Operating Officer of Westminster Academy, and also serves on the board of Stratford School Academy as Director and Trustee. She deliberately chose to work with inner city schools to help address the challenges and issues related to disadvantaged students in the education system. She is a qualified accountant and qualified practitioner in executive coaching. She is also a facilitator and assessor for the Institute of Leadership and Management. Her qualifications and work and experiences in schools over the last 10 years within different settings has allowed her to develop an expert understanding of schools in all areas, such as operations, finances, and compliance. She gained the confidence to assess, challenge, and strategically influence the quality of the education provision within this environment. Teresa is also founder of Meliora High School, which is a not-for-profit company whose mission is to reduce the numbers of persistent absentees and students missing in education across North London, Barra by Barra. Teresa, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you for having me. You are the Chief Operating Officer at Westminster Academy. That's right. But I want to take you back a little bit because in the intro, I did point out that you are a qualified accountant. I am. Did you start your career in accounting? I did. It was back in the days where we didn't have email. So when I left school at 18, I wrote to about 200 accountancy firms (laughs) and asked them if they would take me on as an apprentice. And I secured a role, which took me through my training. uh, And that was fine. And I did that for a good number of years until I had my first child. So qualified as accountant ACCA. Excellent. You've obviously switched career. Tell me, what was it that made you move into the education sector? Initially, it was purely selfish reasons. I had two young children and I just wanted to work the same hours as they attended school. So I thought the easiest thing to do is get into finance within schools, which actually proved a lot more difficult than I thought it would because nobody wanted to take someone on who didn't have school experience, regardless of my qualification. So I essentially had to go in as a finance officer, take a pay cut, Uh, and then work my way up through the ranks um, to get to where I wanted to be. But at least you got longer holidays, right? Much longer holidays, although that's flipped and reversed now. I don't get those anymore, so I don't know how that's worked. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, 
since you got into the education, you've obviously worked your way through to chief operating officer, as I've mentioned. Just talk me a little bit through that journey from when you started in finance, how you worked your way right up until to the COO position. Yeah, um, I think it was really my placement um, at a secondary school in Tottenham that changed things for me. Uh, I had a very good mentor there. He was the school business manager at the time. And he encouraged me to look into school business management because I was getting involved in lots of other things around the school that weren't to do with finance. So I did my diploma and qualified and very quickly realized this was the field that I wanted to get into. Unfortunately, there wasn't space for me there to progress. So I ended up going to a primary school in Islington and becoming the school business manager there. And that was just an incredible experience. I mean, it was the eye-opener for me in terms of having a direct influence on student outcomes, even though I wasn't in the classroom. And it was at that moment I realized that, you know, I actually could have an influence on these kids' lives, even though I don't teach them. It was a weird way to get into it, but since I've started, I haven't stopped. It's just been full pace the whole time. And what were some of the things that you were able to influence that got you to that point where you thought, this is where I really want to be? Being in senior leadership, it afforded me the opportunity to speak to the people who make the decisions, so trustees, governors, the principal, the head teacher, and give them an insight into some of the gaps that not that they weren't paying attention to, but I just think they were unaware. You know, you don't know what you don't know at the end of the day. Mm. And I was able to bridge some of that gap where, for example, there were students who I recognized in myself as growing up in a similar sort of way or in a similar sort of household and knowing those challenges that those students would have faced, which would have been quite a foreign concept to some of the colleagues I was working with. So I was able to explain to them certain cultures, certain ways of working, certain things that might be inappropriate for them to do, even though they're the teacher. It helps them to understand the cohort that they were serving uh, a lot better. And for me, that was you know, a great achievement. I, I really, really enjoyed the fact that I was able to make that difference. Yeah, and actually, do you see that obviously the diversity in the kids at the school has a huge impact in terms of how they are actually taught and whatever. It does. And I think it's based on their experiences with the diverse cohort that they have. In the primary school that I worked at, the divide was very clear. You had your middle class white cohort, and then the ethnic cohort seemed to be more of the deprived uh, families in the area. And so it built up a, an opinion or a, or a bias in some sense of how ethnic people profile in the school. So it was automatically assumed if we had a, a young black boy join the, the school that he's going to be problematic, he's going to need this, that, that and the other, when actually he could have been the brightest boy in the class, but you just haven't given him that chance. You've already given that label. So it's very difficult when you have a cohort that profiles a certain way and that's all they know because school leaders do become accustomed to that and therefore 
kind of tarnish children with the same with the same brush, which is a shame. Yeah. So it sounds like even within the teaching fraternity, um, there is a lot of unconscious bias. There is. So, there yeah. is. And in some schools, it's recognised and it is addressed. Um, I've been at schools where they have attempted insets and training but again it's very difficult to measure the impact of that if you're not following through after the training so there is still a lot of work to be done in that aspect Um, we all come with our own biases but uh, yeah it's definitely a work in progress. From primary school then you've worked your way through to the academy was that by a one or two more schools okay so um the school business management role at the primary school was great but it was very small scale and i definitely wanted a a bigger challenge and the head teacher at the time she recognized my ambition so she put me forward for a role which was actually school business lead of a collaborative in islington which was made up of 22 schools primary and secondary And that was fantastic. I focused on procurement and GDPR. So essentially, I was the data protection officer for the group. And that gave me a nice project to work with in terms of saving schools money, trying to get the best initiatives for students all over Islington. So I I absolutely loved that. But then that contract came to an end. That was only a two-year contract. Uh, So I decided that I wanted to look for a, a school that would, you know, challenge me and definitely Westminster Academy provides that it's a, a much larger school got 1200 students here and you know having a bigger department to work with uh, and and just a bigger scale role uh, made it made it a good a good mood for me excellent now obviously Westminster is a I, I guess class as an inner city school mm-hmm. tell me what challenges and issues do you find in inner city schools, particularly when you've got a school that's got that many students attend? It's mm-hmm. a school. So, what have you seen? What have you experienced in terms of uh, the challenges that you face? The challenges come in different different forms. First of all, we have a very, very diverse cohort of students and it's, it's wonderful to celebrate because when we do International Day here, it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's one of my favourite days of the year. But along with that, it means then having to staff appropriately, right? And that can be a very big challenge because I'm of the belief that it's very important that students see a representation of themselves in the school that they're attending. And it's sometimes really hard to recruit for that representation because the experiences that children may have had in school may put them off from going into teaching. So therefore, as time goes on, when I'm getting CVs or applications through, it's generally very, very dominated by white males predominantly, especially in leadership. It's hard. It's hard to to balance out what the school needs versus, you know, what the students need in terms of what they see uh, when it comes to diversity. So that's one of the challenges I've I've definitely come across. And I'm also assuming that many of the students do not have English as their first language. 
So does that bring on a different set of challenges? Do you have any students that don't speak any English at all? We've had students, not just here, but in other schools who come and they don't speak any English at all. Uh, we have a very good provision here where we try to give them one-to-one support in order to help them with their development. But again, you've got the limit of resources. You know, there's not an endless pot of money. So you're having to look at priority and look at needs and say, you know, who needs it more, when, why, how. Uh, And that's sometimes a very difficult call uh, to make. I think as well with communications, it's important that you're able to have that dialogue with the parents at home. And sometimes that language barrier really does become a barrier because at home they're being taught a certain way and they're being taught certain values and they come to school and sometimes those values are, I wouldn't say disregarded, but they're being challenged because the students are being taught something opposite to that. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult when parents don't, A, understand the language, but B, don't necessarily believe it's worth interacting with the school to discuss these things to then make sure you get the buy-in from the student. So you can overcome it, but it does take a lot of work. Tell me, as a result of that, does that lead to behavioural issues with the students or even truancy? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, We have curriculum drop-down days where we focus on subjects specifically around sex and relationships. And for the majority of that curriculum, parents cannot withdraw their children from those lessons. Now, we don't have so much of a conflict with the parents, but we do struggle with things like children not attending on the day. So it's difficult because I know from my own experience, when I was going to school, my parents signed the slip and said, she's not attending sex education. And that was just a straightforward, how babies are made kind of thing. Now, when you're approaching all of these different areas of inclusion, especially same-sex marriages or relationships and exploring, you know, personal identity, that is a very foreign concept to a lot of, of families and not necessarily one that they want their child to embrace at this moment in time because they feel they've got other things to learn. So, um Yeah, it's hard because if the child decides they don't want to come to school, you don't necessarily have the support from the parent to say, well, I'll I'll make them come in. So it it is quite difficult. And if you do happen to get a parent that says that they don't want their child to either learn about same-sex relationships or sex education, how, how do you react to that? Do you then take that student out of those particular lessons? So legally, there are very few sections of that curriculum that parents can withdraw their children from. And this is where the conflict kind of comes in. It's like saying, you know, I don't know, I don't want my child to learn about Pythagoras' theorem. Like, it's the curriculum, you have to learn it. Essentially, it's the same thing now with with the sex and relationships uh, curriculum. So it's about the dialogue. I think when you get parents to understand what our intentions are or what the purpose is of the, of the curriculum, you can kind of make some headway. But then again, you need to have the buy-in of the parent and it, it, it's not an easy thing to achieve. So 
I think on the school side, we kind of keep our dialogue open. We try as much as possible to answer questions parents may have, but ultimately they're the parent, right? So, um, you know, you have to, you have to sometimes bend to, to, to their will. Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned was the curriculum in schools. Tell me, do you think the curriculum is fit for purpose? I think the only way to answer that is to establish whose purpose we're trying to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have a look at it from a diversity standpoint, I don't think the curriculum is as diverse as it could be. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is when you have a look at the exam bodies, when you have a look at the educational MPs and bodies, say, for example, at the DFE, there is no representation, essentially. So it's very difficult then to introduce something on a school level when on the higher level, which we're all trying to achieve, that's not their, their measuring mark. You know, that's, that's not their aim. So we've, we've done a bit of work about decolonizing the curriculum to introduce the alternative perspective so instead of just learning about the British Empire from the British Empire's point of view, we look at it from the, the view of the people it was happening to. And actually, what does that make you feel as a person, whether you're black or white? How does that make you feel looking at it from another perspective? And I think that's an amazing piece of work for any school to embark upon, because it's not just about teaching the British values but helping the students understand where it is they come from, wherever it is that they come from, helping them to develop that thirst to look into their history to then know exactly who they are and where they're going. Yeah, and probably that was where I was coming from when I asked the question because I honestly believe that if kids do understand their own history mm-hmm. and their own background, gives them something to aim for for their futures mm-hmm. anything. And, and if they're not getting that level of education in terms of where they come from mm-hmm. um, I do think it means that they can lose interest in, in the things that they are being taught you know and I'll bring the subject up particularly with young black boys mm-hmm. you know who I, I guess there is a lot more media attention around young black boys who are playing truant, who are dropping out, who are not qualifying, you know, getting through their exams and then uh-huh. obviously failing in society by not being able to secure work and then going into other areas that um you know more so that create more social challenges um as such. Yeah. So so I think my you know, what I'm trying to, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yes, the curriculum in terms of what's being taught is extremely important. Um, and if, as you quite rightly mentioned, that coming from the Department for Education, there isn't that level of representation there, then it almost feels to me that there's more of a focus that is around just trying to get people through their GCSEs and having those high targets that are set maybe and it almost creates that 
competitive view that's all focused on those children who are more likely to pass their exams than those who are are going to struggle. What what are your thoughts around? It's a tough one because as much as we don't want to focus on results, that's how all schools are are measured, right? And they look at the amount of progress a child has made in their time whilst they've been at school. And and that measurement of progress is what determines whether you are good at what you do or not. Now, it's very hard because success for these students, for one of them, success could just be coming to school every day and attending school. doesn't matter if they get a one, two, or a three in their GCSEs. They came every single day, and nobody sees what struggle that would have been for them. And to me, that's their success. And, and I think that's why it's so hard sometimes when you're in this environment to, I don't know, remain sort of enthused about what you're doing because it's too easy to highlight the ways it's not working. And it's such a big issue. You can almost feel sometimes like there's no way I can change it. Right. So why bother? Right. But there are ways, there are ways. And hopefully I'll be on embarking on that very soon. <laughs> okay. So just tell me then, what, what would you describe as the biggest challenges you face today? And I always like to look at the other side of that coin. Tell me what are you most proud of in terms of achievement within the school that you're at? Oh, that's a good question. I've seen a lot of students, black and white, doesn't matter, suffer greatly with a lack of self-esteem. And a lot of that comes from not understanding who they are or where they come from, but also from the influences on social media forever kind of filling their mind with what they should be or what they should look like or what they, you know, what they should wear. And it's a lot for them. It really is a lot. And I've, I've probably noticed it more now working in a secondary school than I did previously because, you know, you have problems with kids self-harming, not coming to school, you know, coming to school and just being in tears because somebody blocked them on Instagram. You know, it's, it's a real thing for them. It is a real thing. And for me, I've tried to use my time with the kids to kind of introduce them to this concept of knowing thyself, right? And I said to them, you know, unless you know who you are, all of these things are going to bombard you and they're going to affect you every single day until you know exactly who you want to be. And for me, I took the opportunity whilst working here to become head of house. Um, So I have 300 and odd kids in my house and I have termly assemblies with them where I do my motivational bit and speak to them. Uh, And for me, that's an achievement. I, I, you know, normally in my role, I wouldn't have this kind of interaction with students. I'm, I'm grateful for that here at the academy. But I see that 35 minutes as precious time for me to go away from the curriculum, away from the known, and just motivate them the best way I know how. Because I know for some of these kids, they're not going to hear it anywhere else, yeah. you know. And so for me, that's been an achievement that, that really has. And I've had some really nice notes from students. And, you know, it just makes all the difference when you get that little message or, you know, 
a student walks past you in the corridor and gives you a little fist pump and they're like, that was safe, miss. And you're like, yeah, I was all right, innit? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's definitely, definitely the highlight of my, of my time here. Just talking about the, particularly the social media, do you think that's also driven by peer pressure? Particularly wearing certain clothes, trainers, you know, certain styles, etc. Is that a peer pressure thing? Um, yes and no. I think there's so much focus on image, whether it's about weight or it's about clothes. The way that social media works and the algorithm, the way that it can suck in a child to just see, you know, for example, my son recently has been very into the gym and protein shakes and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, that's what he looks at on Instagram, but that's literally all that Instagram will feed him. That is it. Like, you know, I'm looking at puppies and funny cat videos and he's getting muscles and gym workouts. Mm. So although it's intuitive, it's quite dangerous because the algorithm can't tell why the person is looking at what they're looking at. All it does is say, okay, you looked at this a few times, so let's feed you, feed you, feed you, feed you. And so essentially the child gets trapped. That's it. So, you know, I'm not so worried about the peer pressure. I think it's more the alone time. When they're sitting at home and it's just them and their phone and they're scrolling, I think that's the dangerous time. Yeah. Does the school do anything um, to get kids to not think about screens, phones, and, you know, like, like doing more sport or doing more, you know, social stuff like sustainability issues, do they kind of help with helping kids better understand those types of things? Yeah, I mean, we do a lot here in terms of sports. We have like a great, we have championship, girls basketball, boys basketball. We have really good sporting facilities here, so we're really, really lucky. I think when they're in school, you know, it's very easy to control what they do. We've got timetables, so, you know, we can tell them, put your phones away. We have a policy here. The kids can't use their phone um, on school premises at all, so they won't have their phones um, out. We do do a lot of digital learning. So, you know, we teach them via Chromebooks, but again, that's kind of locked down, so they can't access certain websites or, or apps whilst they're in school. So I don't actually think that school is the problem. I think the issue is <clears throat> when they're alone. And that's why I think education has to be more than just about coming to school and doing what the teacher tells you. It has to be about understanding the principles behind what you're learning so that when you're not in school, you can still carry those on. And I think that's where sometimes the education becomes a bit blurry because there's a difference between learning information to pass an exam and then there's learning information to make you a better person when you leave school. It's a difficult balance to strike because, again, like I said, how people's success is measured is ultimately by an exam paper and a, and a grade. Yeah. Whereas for me, success, I would much rather my, my children left school as kind, good, well put together human beings and get a three in maths. All right, we'll work it out. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you could get the grades and just not have those attributes. And I think, you know, that, that, that would be a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you have gone on to found your own school, Meliora High School. 
And mm -hmm. I believe the mission there is to focus on absentee students, students that yeah. are in education. What, what was the concept behind that? Why did you focus on that? Particular okay. Um, so my personal experience growing up, I, I loved school, right? But there were a lot of reasons why I didn't go to school. <laughs> so when I was there, I loved it. But one, one year I was showing my boys my report card. It, I had 55% attendance, right? So half oh, wow. the year I wasn't at school. Um, I'm not promoting it. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I didn't go because I was either bunking with friends or, you know, I just stayed at home. Sometimes, you know, I'd use it as an excuse to help my mum out with the shopping, you know, whatever. If yeah. I didn't feel like going, I'd find a reason not to go. Now that I'm in a school setting, there is a lot of work that the government is doing around attendance. And, you know, schools often celebrate, you know, we've got 93% attendance. That's above national average. Mm -hmm. Yay. And I thought, yeah, that's great. But, you know, in, in our kind of setting, that's like 120 kids that haven't been at school. And at one point, I think there was one or, you know, one term, I was looking at the figures and I was thinking, there's about 30 or 40 kids I've never met. And I've been here three years. You know, so yeah. it it was quite, you know, it just struck me like, but there must be a reason why they're not coming to school. So, you know, we have things like attendance officers and stuff. But again, resources in schools are so, so short. Like, you know, the things you want to do, sometimes you can't do because there's just not the money there. Um, so that made me think, right, what would I want to do to make make a difference to this situation? So I put a proposal together looking at uh, Enfield in particularly uh, to see what the levels of absence were in Enfield and they were pretty high and then I approached Enfield Council and I said hey this is what I want to do I want to reduce the number of persistent absentees in Enfield and this is how I'm going to do it and it was essentially by using the the child as the starting point and then working with their support network. So having a look at what the parents need or the uncle or the carer, whoever it is, what we could do to support them, to support the child coming into school. And thankfully, Enfield loved the idea and helped me kind of push it. Um, so we're looking to open our doors September 24 um, to our first cohort of 100 students. So I'm very, very excited. <laughs> That's fantastic. And are you looking to grow? that number over subsequent years or maybe open more schools in different areas what what is the ambition and the plan well my first ambition is to remove the stigma that is attached to attending an alternative provision because i want the students who come to meliora to be proud that they are making a change and i want that success to essentially permeate throughout their their circle so what my plan is, is to get our first base, uh, the first model, uh, fully functioning, and then to look at replicating that model across different boroughs. Because I truly believe once you have the model, you could, you could replicate it anywhere and, and it will be successful. So that's the aim. We'll, we'll start with one and then, yeah, get the rest rolling. And I'm assuming you'll still be measured on results you know, exam results in the same way that the FP or the office. 
Well, my, uh, my uh, setting won't be running exams. So the schools will do the exams at the school that they're attached to. And our program is a program of reintegration. So essentially what we'll be doing is, although we will support them with core subjects, we're looking to help them build their resilience as a person. So a lot of our time with the students will be spent through mentoring, coaching, teaching them life skills, especially with year 11, because that for me is, is a key year that even if you don't do well in your grades, you need to have a plan. Yeah. And what we want to do is to use their interests as the basis for what we educate them on. Um, so it's about developing that love for learning through things that they already love. So if they like a certain artist, for example, you take a song, that's an English lesson once you dissect the lyrics. It's a music lesson once you, you know, put a beat together. Let's see if we can change this up a little bit. How do you promote it? You know, that's media. Now we're going into marketing and media. So there's taking one thing they love and just showing them the yeah. breadth of education that surrounds it and the different avenues they could um, explore once they left school. I'm going to switch a little bit because I want to get on to the subject of teachers. Um, we see a lot in the press that, one, there is a shortage of teachers, mm -hmm. which I assume means then there is a, a shortage of diversity of teachers. Why is there such a, a shortage? Mm. Yeah, I think there are lots of different reasons. The things that I've come across in my time in education is definitely since COVID, I think people have opted for, they've seen a different way of living, right? And a different yeah. way of working. You can now work from home. You can have flexible hours. I don't have to be in the office two days a week. You can't do that as a teacher. It's just not going to happen. So I think definitely since COVID, people have opted for that that flexible hybrid working model, uh, which has meant they've come out of the of the teaching sector. But I also think it's about the experiences people have had within schools. Mm -hmm. And sad to say that I, I belong to a forum, uh, a diverse forum, uh, specifically for black and ethnic minorities who are in leadership in schools. There's probably about, I think maybe like maybe a hundred or so of us in this in this forum. But every week you hear another one. I've resigned. I've resigned. I've resigned. And there is still a lack of understanding at, especially at senior leadership level. The comments that are made sometimes that people don't realise how offensive they are. Oh, wow. The way you have to control your reactions and how you express yourself to not be targeted as the black aggressive woman it's very very difficult and for some people it's not sustainable you know for their own well-being it's it's it can't carry on so that lack of support i think at senior leadership level does create a divide and it makes people leave the profession i mean in this country we have 2% of the head teachers in this country are black or from uh, an ethnic background. 2%, that's a joke, quite frankly. And it's not for people not wanting to progress because I personally have worked with many teachers who have tried 
essentially. Mm-hmm. Not once and not twice, not three times. They've tried many times to become principal, head teacher, vice principal, and there's always that block. You're great. You're wonderful. We loved everything you do, but it's just something. Well, what's the something? Tell me, because yeah. I want to know. I want to do better. Nobody can ever give you that something, right? Because it's it's unsaid, yeah. essentially. You, you know, they're not going to tell you the real reason, uh, which is sad. It is really sad. And so when people see this struggle, it's like, why bother? You know, what, what's the point? There's that glass ceiling then that exists. Definitely, yeah. most definitely. And then it's about also how much you value your values. Mm. So you could well and truly be going into an institution that doesn't necessarily promote how you want to live or yeah. how you believe you should live. And it's, that's not an easy thing to, to battle with yeah. every day. Um, so I think there are a lot of different reasons, but for me personally, I think I've definitely had my challenges getting into senior leadership. I've been assertive and at times that hasn't been appreciated. I've been overlooked many a time. I've had comments many a time, you know, put twists in my hair and they tell me, oh, you haven't got your business hair in. Mm. What does that mean? Mm. You know? It's, it's 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 not an easy ride. It definitely isn't an easy ride. It's doable, but I think it's also important that we have to fight that fight for the ones that are coming up behind us. And and that's why I do what I do. Yeah. Because if it's just for the fact that one little black girl says, Miss Alate did X, Y, and Z, that's me. Yeah. That was the whole reason I came into education. I'll be happy with just one. Yeah. So- but... I think it's important we do it. Yeah, and what I I don't quite understand. Obviously, there's a lack of there's a lack of leadership, right? Which you mm-hmm. A lack of diverse leadership. But I really find it hard to understand that at the Department for Education, you're now getting into the government spaces to drive the. Are you saying that they don't? They can't see this. They can't see this issue that there is a lack of diversity, particularly in the inner city schools where you'd mm-hmm. expect to have greater representation of the pupils that attend those schools. They see it. But I guess you have to reanalyze what is their agenda, mm. essentially. Because we have a lot of EDI now, equality, diversity, and inclusion. Yeah. I hear this everywhere. Big, big adverts, you know. We celebrate. We want um, applications, particularly from black women. I, I, okay, fine. But I don't want to get the job just because I'm a black woman. I want to get the job because I'm good at what I do. So I don't understand sometimes how the uh, initiative is promoted. Yeah. I find sometimes it's tokenistic. I find sometimes it's disingenuine. Um, not with- and I think if we don't have an end goal, I don't, I don't believe that there's an end goal. They haven't yeah. got like, you know, we want 50% of head teachers to be black. Yeah. I, I don't believe that's their aim. <laughs> right. They see the problem, but they have to be seen to be saying, okay, we recognize it. So, you know, let's do this. Yeah. I'll give you an example, which I saw on uh, LinkedIn the other day. So Ofsted, have invited black people to come and essentially shadow 
Ofsted inspectors for the day or for a period of time. Okay, well and good. Why not just give them the job? I don't understand. Why are you not just giving them work? Why? So it's, it's like, you know, come and play with us for the day. Yeah. And then what happens after that? Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like they recognize there's an issue, but the way they go about addressing it, it almost builds frustration. It was so funny reading the comments on LinkedIn because you had some people that were like, this is a great initiative. Oh my gosh, I get to go into Ofsted. And you had other people like, what the heck is this? This is not a, you know, a day trip. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so with all you know, the EDI it's, stuff, it, it almost sounds yeah. like they are here to be doing this for the right reasons and good intentions. But on the other hand, it looks like this is all like a box exercise just to, you know, put that face up to say, yes, we are, you know, we believe in diversity yeah. and inclusion and we are trying to improve the situation but deep down there's not a lot really no i mean you have to lead by example Mm. and all i'm going to say is google department for education members and look at the pictures that's all i'm going to say okay (laughs) brilliant Um, tell me Teresa, you you've got so many things going on not just as you know your current role as uh, chief operating officer that you sit on the board at stratford School Academy mm-hmm. as well. You founded Meliora. Uh, tell me what what is your what's your master plan? What's the the, the big goal that, that you have for yourself and for education? My big goal is to be the voice of the people that are unheard. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's okay. my ultimate goal. There are a lot of unheard kids out there, and. I just want to be able to get them to where they need to be in order to be the best version of themselves. That's it. That's it. And if I do it with just one school and just a hundred kids, it's enough, but I can't not do it anymore. I like that. It's a very simple goal, but one that is very impactful. We're coming up to the end of the show, Teresa. It's been fantastic speaking to you. I love the work that you're, you're doing and and the goals that. that Thank you. Um, and I do hope that you know we get more people like yourself into the education system because, to me, it is the only way that we will see change. And I believe that, particularly, you know, children, black kids, Asian kids, given the right levels of support, um, I think all kids are bright. Yeah, given the right yeah. level of support, because yeah. kids absorb information. Right, we know that exactly. If they're given the right environment to operate in, I think they can all fly. But it's unfortunate that they're not all getting that environment. But I think the work that you're doing is helping that to happen. So I'd like to thank you for that. And, oh. <laughs> uh, hopefully, we'll see. You know, we'll see this uh, change over time. But I agree with you that it's got to change at the top. It's, Most definitely, it's got to change in government as well. And once we see the changes at the top, that should cascade and flow down and have a positive impact. Anyway. Yeah, most definitely. We'll make it. we just got to pull together. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts, anything else you'd like to, to add before we close out? Yeah, just to say that don't give up. Whatever it is that you're out there trying to do, don't give up because it just takes one of us. That's yeah. it. It just takes one. So 
let's help each other out, get to where we need to be, and we'll see the changes we want to see. Fantastic. That is great, particularly in the month of uh, UK Black History. So thank you very much for that. Uh, Teresa, it's been great speaking to you. Wish you every success with everything you're doing. And uh, I'll try and keep an eye on how you're progressing, particularly with uh, <laughs> the school opening next Please year. Do. <laughs> great stuff. Yes. All right. Thank you, Mike. Lovely. Thank you. You take care and uh, speak to you soon. Bye for now. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Diversity Matters. We hope that through our discussions, we have brought a deeper understanding of what equity, diversity and inclusion truly means for each of us. Remember that the journey to a truly inclusive and equitable world is ongoing. Let's continue to champion these values in our lives and strive for positive change together. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to like and subscribe the show on your favorite podcast channel. And we look forward to joining us on the next episode. And remember, inclusion, equity and diversity matters.